and welcome back to Coffee with Curators. I am the assistant curator at Riverview's art space, Meg Weston. And I'm curator Brooke Marcy. We work at Riverview's art space, a nonprofit arts organization in downtown Lynchburg, Virginia, that's dedicated to exhibiting contemporary art in our galleries and making contemporary art accessible to our community. This podcast is just one way we hope to connect our audience with our artists beyond our exhibits, in this case, our program, because today we have an artist of a different media with us. April is National Poetry Month, and Review's Art Space has an annual program called Beat Bird, where we share the poetry of local poets, both publicly and online, on our website. So, yay! Our guest today is Lynchburg's own Hannah Cohen. She has an MFA from Queen's University of Charlotte, uh, and she's been published in several poetry journals and magazines and has had nominations for Best on the Net and a Pushcart Prize. Um, She's also a loving cat mother of two. So welcome, Hannah, for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me on here. I'm glad to do something again for, for Lynchburg and the art community here, so especially the, the written word community, I guess. Yes, you're our first artist that is not a visual artist on our podcast. So that's fun. Well, I think the text, text and words and writing is still visual. You engage with it, you know, on the page. So yeah, it's just an artist of a different type. Yeah, definitely. So absolutely. I used to ask all my students who are writers. Um, I was just always really curious as there what their answer would be. As do you when you're writing, do you envision pictures? Uh, do you hear sound? And I've had uh, people respond and they see text, they see uh, visual imagery, and they they just see sound. They just hear sound. So when you mentioned that, it brought up that I'd totally forgotten that I do that, um, I, I, that I had done that. So uh, when you write, what do you see in your head? Um, yeah, I actually, I, I do think a lot about when I'm writing something, I tend to think about like certain images that kind of come to mind or feelings. A lot of it is mostly feeling-based, um, emotion-driven, a lot of... Um, kind of textural sort of moments. I think when people try to sit down and write a poem, they try to like go dot, you know, dive first into like the image, but I find that sometimes a little bit overwhelming and not really sometimes how you want to start like, you know, cracking the old poetry muscles, so to speak, after, especially if you haven't written poetry in a while. (laughs) So, you know, I think it's important to kind of think about, you know, what, kind of like immediate first impressions. So I think sounds like certain music, definitely I think of when I'm starting to write something, um, emotions, yeah, again, that kind of like texture of experience. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry. I went out of order of our questioning. To, okay, Meg, hit her with the percolator. It was just like when you, when you talked, it just absolutely reminded me. I was like, oh my gosh, I used to ask all of my students who are writers, you know, because I'm a visual artist, so I was like, "What do you see when you write?" Okay, back to the back to the percolator. Sorry, Meg, couldn't resist. Oh. 
I got sidetracked. I'm so easily sidetracked, you'll notice that. And I it's also okay. ramble. Okay. <laughs> Brooke, you act like it's easy for us to stay in order when we can just jump around really in any moment. So oh. I'm not not too worried about okay. the order of things. Okay. Yes, the percolator, our icebreakers part of the coffee-themed podcast. We Is have... there a fish in that percolator? No. Twin Peaks reference. Oh, I am vastly unprepared for any Twin Peaks reference. Oh, well. So sorry to well, let you know. I, you know, this is a fun podcast, but I gotta go. No. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We could just stop it here. No. <laughs> it's a stupid joke. No worries. Uh, so, Hannah mentioned when I invited her on the podcast that she has a chai tea latte addiction. So, what is it about the chai tea latte that draws you in and makes you choose it over coffee? I like the spices of it and that it's, you know, I think chai, people think of like a generic like chai blend, but if you actually like go to tea shops or, you know, even if you even go to Starbucks and add like, you know, a dirty chai, which I usually sometimes will split between a ch- like a chocolate espresso. So like there's a little bit of coffee, but I don't drink it straight um, or like toffee like the toffee nut syrup that they have is really good. Um, but a lot of times if you get like different blends, like the, I once had like a chai with a um, Earl Grey blend or like a vanilla or like kind of things that make it a little bit more earthy. I really like matcha for the same reason. It's very like down to earth. It's not super, it's not super sweet. But like real, like real matcha as in drink it straight from like a giant bowl matcha. Like, yes, <laughs> I mean, not- I I love matcha too. And then have you ever seen anybody drink matcha that hasn't had matcha before the look on their face? <laughs> Oftentimes they're like, oh my God, I'm drinking seaweed. Or grass. That's or kind grass. of, I mean, you know, it's it definitely, it's not, a, it, I guess it's either an acquired taste or a taste not for everyone, but as someone that really likes earthy, you know, spice, not traditionally like sweet or tangy teas I tend to find myself drinking those more often because it's not like immediately you know sugar brush power you know <laughs> yeah sometimes you get a chai tea latte and it is just straight soup like just syrup and I'm, yeah, I'm I don't just like not that. a fan I like it when it's more like cinnamon and, and spicy anise yeah you have yeah. like a little bit of like oh, yeah. maybe, you know other other spices in there that isn't just sweet so yeah, that's that's kind of the story. I, I regularly get chai from Starbucks with usually like a, a shot of something else in it. So it's not just like sweet drink. Right. <laughs> and their matcha, I actually do kind of like, but you know, it's kind of hard to find like an organic matcha that you can't just buy like the powder or literal, I guess, grass from. <laughs> the grass. Yeah. Well, since we've already deviated, I'm going to deviate from my other question because you kind of already talked about like your preference of chai tea but did we found through this podcast that a lot of people pick up their caffeine addiction during grad school did you find that you also had that kind of intake I actually kind of stopped drinking coffee around grad school I actually drink it more at like when I was at community college, like, and I had earlier classes sometimes when I was at, you know, my regular undergrad Randolph, um, 
But in general, I've never really been like a huge like coffee drinker. No, with chai's, yeah, I would say I definitely increased my intake like around grad school. I guess you could say that. You know, there was a Starbucks on campus at like a Starbucks run coffee shop on campus at Queens. So, you know, all the writers were there lined up at <laughs> trying to get their fix before the other like residential Queens students could. So it was always like this battle of like the grad students and the um, residential, like when we were there for the summer anyway like just <laughs> you know constantly trying to get there before they other students would <laughs> cool so the last question the percolator is who would you sit and share your tea with living or dead whether you know them or not who is your your talking buddy at a at a salon yeah, or like shy tea date um Dream date. That could be fun. Dream date. Oh, gosh. Well, we don't want to go down that avenue. Um, I don't know. I think I actually have a, a portrait of, I think, maybe having, like, shy with W.B. Yates here. I think that would be really interesting because he was into, like, all the weird, you know, kind of woo-woo um, automatic writing stuff. And, of course, he is one of my favorite poets, Irish poet. Um, you know, I just, I've always really admired his... Um, canon of work and I think just I don't know having like a 30 minute conversation with him would be pretty cool I mean you know he definitely is like a man of his time I guess but I don't know pretty influential and I you know again it would just be kind of interesting to listen to him and hear him talk about like what he was doing at his time like a lot of like some political poetry about Ireland obviously and kind of the ongoing strike there I think can be definitely related to now so yeah I think that would be a nice Nice tea and biscuits, I guess, with him. Maybe not biscuits. He was Irish. Never mind. <laughs> it sounds like a good time. Insulting, insulting him beyond the grave. So, <laughs> well, really can't do much about that, Kenny. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that was fun. It's always fun. I like it. I get yeah. tickled every time we do the percolator. <laughs> no, they're always, always good. Um, so my first question for you is when did you start writing poetry? Oh, Lord. Uh, <laughs> I mean, in general, I guess I started writing when I was really, like a lot of other, I guess, writers, it's pretty cliche to say that they started writing at a young age, and that's true for me. I think, like, poetry, poetry, I wrote, like, a couple poems in, like, elementary and middle school, um, and then it really wasn't until like, you know, the dreaded high school teenage angst years where I started writing like really angsty poetry, I think as most, most writers do, especially during that time. But I think like seriously, as in, I would like to write poems and publish them, you know, as part of my interest in this career slash publishing kind of record. Um, definitely like in college was when I got more and more serious. Um, yeah, poetry, but, you know, I think I'd always, like, written a lot of, like, fiction when I was younger, and, yeah, it's just been kind of a lifelong thing I've done for God knows how long. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, I would say around, like, early college, but then also, like, started writing it more aggressively in high school. <laughs> <laughs> all the, all the um, emo, goth, punk, uh, fueled lyrics of <laughs> yesteryears, <laughs> Do you ever revisit those? To, God. Um, or, or actually revisit one and rewrite one with a, with a totally different perspective? Um, 
You know, funny enough, at um, my high school, I think in my mom's house, I, they still have a, um, a magazine of like creative work that our high school Easy Glass put out. And I think a couple of my poems are still in there. And I remember looking at one of them a few years back, like in, when I was in grad school, trying to like quickly come up with like a poem for <laughs> critique. Cause I was like, oh crap, I've only written like three poems and not like the five that I'm supposed to turn in. So, um, so yeah, I actually did go back and look at it. I don't know if I rewrote it word for word, but um, it's definitely interesting to kind of revisit old work and just either feel the immediate cringe or also like try to figure out what you were feeling at the time. Yeah, I would think that that would be an interesting to put yourself in your shoes as a younger self mm-hmm. and then revisit it as the older self and how would the older self actually interpret you know yeah. being being a younger when you were younger yeah. and I, I imagine that's the same thing with visual artists you look at a piece you created like 5 10 15 years ago and you're either like oh wow like finding the immediate flaws or you're sometimes like wow I wish I could replicate that And, you know, it's hard, I think, to revisit the same state of mind, like no matter how many times you feel sad or angry or passionate about something, it's always going to be slightly different Mm -hmm. just because life circumstances kind of deem it so. But um, I think there's a benefit to keeping some of that old cringy work anyway. (laughs) Oh, I I think so. You know, and and interestingly enough, and I don't know if, if this is the same with writing, and as I was telling Meg earlier today, we had a project in grad school where we worked with the MFA um, uh, poetry program at George Mason and uh, the MFA artists. And we did something called call and responses where uh, the uh, poets would give us a poem and we'd do a painting based on the poem and the, then the painters would give the poets. And so it kind of back and forth. And, and when we talked, one of the one of the requirements is that we had to sit down and talk process. And I was absolutely fascinated both times I did this exhibition twice that the we had the same process. It was like bizarre. It was it was I sat down with two different poets at two different times, and it was when we started talking about process, it was just it was very similar and I, I it's not what I expected I figured the process would be different in some way and it really it really wasn't um and so so what I find actually looking back at my older work is sometimes I'll look at it and I'll say oh that's what you meant I didn't quite at the time know what that piece meant at the time would that be the same for you in your poems Do you oh yeah especially at them and Especially, I think the written word, like, and this is applicable to like fiction, nonfiction, poetry, drama, et cetera, um, that you, when you write something down, you, I think you always like subconsciously have like some other meaning to it, even if you don't realize it at the time. So yeah, that absolutely does happen. Like I'll be reading a poem I wrote like five months ago or five years ago Mm -hmm. and just kind of be like, oh, so that's really like, the topic I was trying to discuss and maybe I just wasn't like mentally ready for it so I tried to write it in a way where it wasn't like completely there so yeah absolutely yeah yeah and for for myself as a visual artist I get this imagery that comes to me that I have to explore but I don't really always know why at that time you know why why do I need to why do I need to explore this and it's only 
you know, during grad school, you came up with a reason because you had to, but, but that wasn't always necessarily what, what the reason was. And five years down the road, the reason you look at the work and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I just wasn't ready yet. <laughs> yeah, that definitely, that definitely happens in writing as well. Mm-hmm. So when that happens, do you revisit the work? I mean, I, I tend to revisit it when I finally understand it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I still, I have copies of like some journals I've been published in. And of course, like my, my chat book, shameless plug in here. Um, I, you know, it got published in, God, I don't even know what year it is. I, it, 2018. So that was like, what, three years ago? I mean, we all know time's a construct and nothing's real, but <laughs> three years ago. And like, just looking at it now, like when I started putting together those poems back in, I think 2017 or something, you know, it's just, it's crazy to think like how long it's been. And, you know, when I revisit these poems, I'm like, oh yeah, that's where I was trying to get at. Or, you know, maybe it's, it wasn't in its final form then. I think people have this misunderstanding that like when you publish a book, especially like with poetry, I'm not sure for like fiction or nonfiction, but with poetry, like there are other forms of that poem that exist like off the page. I think just because we're so used to like collections by like long dead writers, that it's like, the definitive edition of a poem, but a lot of times, especially contemporary day, you know, a poem can exist in a one journal and be completely like edited differently into another like anthology. And then you have like the published book. So it's not just like this static form. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of like the reader and the writer's understanding of a poem can kind of shift just because Again, you're never really in the same state when you're reading something, whether you've read it again or it's your first time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's sort of like I try to explain this to my students sometimes. Do you see, how do you see, like artists actually create in like circles or spirals, coming around and back to similar themes over mm-hmm. and over out again throughout their career? It's just kind of like, it's not linear. It's not mm-hmm. static but it does tend to overlap and repeat itself over time. Have you, how would you describe um, your, your process in, in that sense? Do you, do you find it kind of moving around, repeating itself and then moving on or? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely things I think I've always like have kind of gravitated towards writing about, whether it's like, you know, religious identity or just like faith, you know, I was, I was raised Jewish in like a largely, you know, prominently Christian city here in, in Lynchburg. And I do think that's like slowly changing. It's not like as bad as it was for me, like growing up. But at the same time, you know, it's just something that kind of stays with you, you know, same thing with like family relationships. Um, but I also write a lot about, you know, emotions. I write, you know, I've been delving into like nonfiction. So I've been writing about like inner culture and you know kind of parasocial relationships and things like that so I think you know you kind of think of it as like a tree whereas the trunk is kind of like the main body of it that you keep like returning to but then you kind of branch off into other little things where you know they still connect in some Ooh, way but I they're still that way you say I'm right. gonna take that can I take that because I like the tree uh, metaphor I love the fact that the trunk and you go off on the branches but you tend to yeah. come back the yeah absolutely and you know it's all connected in some way to what you're interested in as well as what like informs you and what kind of you know what kind of environment you're in so you know I wouldn't want to say like oh I only ever write about 
these three things, but you know, it's more like I tend to write about these things that kind of inform like the themes of whether it's a chapbook or, you know, other essays or things, but you know, at the same time, I'm very interested in several other topics that I've been writing about and I don't want to just completely discard that and just say, Oh, well, it's not the main body of my work. Why should I write about it or something? Right. But it's probably an important branch, a branch in which you have to explore Mm -hmm. and you can always go back to the main kind of factor trunk. Oh, I'm totally using that. Thank you. (laughs) Excuse me. I'm appropriating that language because that is completely okay. I'm sure someone else, someone out there has also used the same. That's like like the thing, right? Everything's already been done. No matter what. Why even try to do anything original? No. (laughs) No, that's that's not the attitude, but that's okay. since you've touched on a lot of your subject matter being emotion and like family life-based, faith-based, feminist, I would say, uh, what is it like for you to sh- open up and share that with people? I mean, any you mean artist like my family? Like that? Well, I mean, you can share your family's reaction, but mostly like complete strangers, like when any artist has to put themselves out there so how do you how do you feel about that how do you um, it is, it's always a little scary i think to be perceived um i'm sure any <laughs> any artist whether visual or written or like a, a screenwriter or stage play you know writer mm-hmm. um it's always a little scary to have like this thing that you've created like your child and you're putting it out into the world or they're gonna like oh my god are they gonna judge it it's like that's an ugly child that's an <laughs> you know this is a dumb poem well it's, I haven't gotten that response, but especially when it's like something so like deeply personal to you that you don't really like you haven't even told people like in real life. Like I, I published an essay back in November about like fan fiction and internet culture. And that was like actually really scary for me to share because that was like such like a deeply personal thing that I'd never even like told my mom about. And of course now it's all funny and fine and you know it, it was well received, but I think you um when you share things with people, you never really know what the re- reaction is going to be. And also, I think, depending on where you live, I think it can kind of be hard to like share any sort of art when you're around people that you're not sure is, if they're going to quote unquote understand it. It's like the classic, like, you know, going to the Contemporary Art Museum, people being like, oh, I bet I could do that when it's just like, you know, a thin black line where it's like, you don't know Bernard Newman's work, <laughs> go away. <laughs> You, I think that's him, right? The one with yeah. the zip, the light. Um, yeah, you know that. <laughs> former almost art history major here, so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think when people, it, it's hard because they think, oh yeah, I can do that same thing and, you know, kind of like belittle it in that way or I don't understand it. But you know what? I'd rather have people be like, I don't understand it or you know, as long as they don't like outright. Nice people are allowed to hate. Art. it's all subjective yeah. it's always it's always like just a little touchy but I've gotten better over the years of just being open with kind of the stuff that I do want to share because otherwise why am I writing it like yeah I could write it for myself but ultimately I want it for those pieces in particular to be out there in the world so I couldn't like hold back on that yeah like any artist any creative we create because we want to get it out and we want mm-hmm. to share it with people because it's like a great way to connect with people that you may not even know who will see it and yeah. relate to that. And I, th- I think poetry especially is becoming so much because it's 
experiencing like an online boom in the last, I would say five years, 10 years even. Cause you know, growing up poetry, you thought was like just written by dead white guys from, you know, hundred years ago. And, you know, you didn't really read any like contemporary poets that were, cause they were all mostly in like academia. So you wouldn't read them until like maybe when you were in college or maybe late high school. Um, but now since there's so many people online, like just sharing their poems on like Instagram or Twitter or like online journals where people traditionally didn't have access to like all the print journals to subscribe to. So I think that's the real like great part about like sharing a poem online is that someone else will see it, someone that you don't know, someone who, you know, maybe it's their first time reading a poem ever or just, you know, not something that was written. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like my boy Willie Shakes, but <laughs> you know, it, it, you kind of want to read something else that wasn't written like 500 years ago. So <laughs> <laughs> and but having that community just like mm-hmm. having a printmaking community having a painter community yeah. makes sharing that way easier <laughs> just like having a community of not just writers but like other artists because i think i think poetry especially gets this really bad rap of being like the isolated you know goth <laughs> you know moody <laughs> writer brooding writer crowd in the coffee shop you know chain smoking outside at a cafe or something that's not that's not true really um I mean it can be intensely like private but I think at the same time that kind of reputation doesn't do their writing any good because you know we all are informed by like musicians and painters and like other writers um, that aren't just like poets but like fiction um, you know any composers you know film you know I think it's all connected in a way where you talk to people who have other interests that still read poetry so it's not you know again I don't I (laughs) not everyone is like you know holed up in a a room somewhere for eight months you know writing stuff not everyone is an Emily Dickinson so you know it's I think it's kind of a disservice to just assume that like poets by themselves are solitary creatures because I don't I don't think that's true but more than AWP wouldn't exist and lord knows that's a party (laughs) (laughs) well then uh since you know most artists don't just deal with the medium that they choose to deal with like uh like I've done writing and I've done painting and printmaking and drawing almost as like my whole life I've been drawing and writing so is there other outlets? Brooke, I stole your question. I'm sorry. That's fine. <laughs> Are there other creative outlets that you've been doing this whole time along with your writing? So, yeah, I, I've gotten back into drawing in the past. I would say since the pandemic started, like when quarantine happened. Um, you know, I, I actually, I've been drawing just as long as I've been doing writing. And I drew quite a lot throughout middle and high school. Like, you know, a lot of anime stuff, obviously, that was the thing. But like, I still enjoyed it and I was taking a lot of high school art classes and I really for a moment wanted to be like an animator so like a lot of my knowledge about like cartoons and stuff nowadays is like really like because I never went to like animation school or like art school or whatever which (laughs) jokes on me I ended up going to an MFA so (laughs) it all worked out um so yeah I love I've been visiting like charcoal drawing especially which I've always loved I love like messy with like fine charcoal and like playing around with um, different types of like ash and um, charcoal that isn't just like traditional blocky charcoal. Like I started like burning matches and using that too. Cool. <laughs> so that works. You can even go out and get a briquette 
from yeah. uh yeah and i mean especially if you want to go big you can get help yourself to a briquette <laughs> yeah I, I um you know it's been a while since i i try to like when i do charcoal drawings i try to like spray you know fixative outside because i'm you know i hadn't done charcoal drawing in years since like the ventilation room at bc glass um so it's been kind of nice to like revisit that and not have to be so pressured to write because i'll be honest the pandemic was not very kind to me like the first seven eight months of it i really didn't write all that much but i began drawing again and you know i'd like to get back into maybe painting at some point i did some painting at randolph um for like an extracurricular but i'd like to get back into that too you know i think it's important when you feel like burned out in one subject like whether it's writing or art you know visual art sculpting like it's important to kind of exercise other parts of your brain so you're not just like forcing yourself to do something you know it's different when it was like grad school and I'm like okay I have to have like five pages to to workshop and you know sometimes like the creative genius jumps out at the deadline you know but when you have like all this time and you're not really sure how to you know use it for writing then you know doing something like visual art drawing painting you know a lot of people have taken up cross stitch every time i'm on like instagram or twitter i see someone's new like cross stitch you know yeah sort of thing and i'm like maybe i should try that and i'm like i don't know like i'm afraid of needles <laughs> <laughs> um so i think people are really like starting to lean into those hobbies that they may have like explored at one point before life got like too busy or something they were interested in and then now with you know the pandemic and like subsequent quarantine and people working, most likely working from home more, like and having all this time, I think it's been kind of a, a return to things that like we do for fun and not necessarily for productivity or you know, for the sake of capitalism. Like again, I'm, you know, obviously artists gotta sell art and get eat food and make money, but at the same time, sometimes you just want something for like yourself. And that's, you know, it's the same thing about poetry. There are definitely things I've written that I haven't shared with people probably just because it's more of like a venting exercise. That's like your sketchbook. But especially with like drawing, you know, I I don't have, I'm not going to be like an animator. I'm not going to be like a, you know, portraitist or whatever. Um, But, you know, it's been nice just to do something different and kind of think about, you know, oh, wow, this is how I'm feeling. You know, you you exercise different parts. And I do think that that's what helps you return to your main art um, subject of choice when you've explored other areas of yourself and you're like, oh, okay, well now I feel better because I've drawn for several weeks now. And I think now I have something to come back to, to write about. Yeah, and I think that as artists, we need to find balance. Mm -hmm. And if you just stick with one outlet, you're going to be out of balance. Yeah. So, for example, I paint, but during grad school, more than now, I did printmaking, and my printmaking was very minimal mm-hmm. when my painting is is not. And it's that constant that constant search of of balance mm-hmm. in 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 your making. Um, at least for me, I, I need I need those two outlets, and I do cooking now so i cook as well as as doing my art and that balances mm-hmm. um kind of the process of both it, it it creates um that that definite and you know nobody sees my printmaking and 
you know, people see my cooking, but that's kind of different because I eat it. Um, so I think as artists, we always need to kind of balance our, our, our energy. Yeah, absolutely. Whether it's like making something or in my case, like I've been trying to get back into reading. Um, I've, I bought a couple of books over the past, I guess, year, you know, a couple of poetry books, a couple of like nonfiction. I've really been getting into a lot of nonfiction reading just to kind of, again, exercise the part of my brain. I'm sure when we all, when we're all in grad school and we have, we are hyper-focused on our one area. Like I read a lot of poetry in grad school when I was out. I'm like, okay, I'm getting burned out. Right. <laughs> Let me read some fiction. Let me especially read some nonfiction and just kind of learn about different things that way. Um, but I've gotten back into reading poetry again, bought, you know, a couple books over the past few months and um, just finding my way back into that sort of, you know, not community, but more of a back in that practice again. Yeah. Excellent. Um, let's see. Um, you know, I'm just curious. I mean, as, as a visual artist, we're always trying to get shows. And so you send in your applications and, and, and I imagine that it's published to get published. Is that the, pretty much the same thing? Um, yeah, I mean, you have, you know, you have submissions. So kind of like what I mentioned about not writing much, I barely submitted anything last year. I had that one essay published, but that was kind of a special case because that was technically solicited. And we spent several months like on edits and sending it back and forth. Because there's a lot more to nonfiction publishing than there is poetry publishing, um, you know. So just like some basic fact checking and proofreading, and like ad continually adding to things um, that were happening because of news. So that was more of an ongoing project. But um, with poetry, yeah, there's, you know, you, you traditionally like if you were going to let's say you write some poems, if you're going to wanting to publish them, then a lot of journals usually have like guidelines where they want. X amount of poems within an X amount of pages. They have like their traditional like waiting period. Um, and then if you don't hear back, you bury them obviously. It's definitely changed a lot from what I understand from like 20, 25 years ago where you still had to like mail submissions in. I mm -hmm. can't, I, God, I am so impatient. I would, I probably would not have been a poet in the 80s or 90s. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could do it, man. Um, <laughs> you know waiting several months and like getting like your own work like rejected by mail out in this day of instant gratification you know but you know, i mean I've, I've waited several months before especially for like the big like i guess quote unquote like top tier magazine sometimes you wait up to a mm -hmm. year which i don't really submit to them anymore unless, unless they like want me to work there. i mean hit me up you know new yorker no <laughs> Oh, I do. I love the New Yorker. Ugh. But, you know, a lot of times, like, I just, you know, submitting is a whole other process where you have to really be, like, mentally prepared for it. Because it's one thing to write the poem, but then to, like, figure out kind of what venues you want to send it to is equally. Like, I'm sure if you were, you know, visual art, you know, sometimes you don't want to send, like, a, like a traditional still life, maybe to, like, a, a sci-fi focused magazine that wants like art you know what I mean like that kind yeah. of there are specifics or like you don't want to send like a cart you know a concept art of like some cartoon show to you know something that wants like floral you know flower yeah. scenery yeah. you know kind of like yeah 
Yeah, no, you, you you do. You tend to like oftentimes read through and and yeah, exactly what you're talking about for shows. You kind of read who the who's curating it. What is the interest of that curator? And if that curator, the museum, yeah, and that's the same yeah. thing for all journals, not just poetry, but like fiction and nonfiction. Now there aren't journals that are more open to like anything um, that just want like your best work, but sometimes it's actually harder to like send stuff to those places because you're not really sure exactly what they want. What do they want? You know, they want something. Or like they have like, especially like literary journals kind of run the problem of like being like overly poetic, even in their submission guidelines where like, we want work that crackles like fire. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, I'm a poet, but I have no idea what that means. <laughs> or like, we yeah. want it to glisten like a purple morning dew. And I'm like, I still don't know what that means, but okay. Yeah. Like, do you, do you want like image-driven narrative poems? Do you want like surreal experimental work? Like, you know, I have a poem I'm working on right now that's set in an Excel spreadsheet. And I, I'm still like trying to figure out where it would work best, like probably an online journal, because it'd be kind of tricky to like format that for the print page but at the same time I'm like well who would accept this <laughs> oh I think it's a fascinating idea because you're polar now I'm going to sound like a, a visual artist you're playing with your surface mm-hmm. and I never thought about that as a as a writer like because I play with surface all the time and and that's exactly what you're doing mm-hmm. is is playing with the actual surface in which you're there's, working on there's a lot of writers out there not just poets but writers who are experimenting with you know different ways of how people read their work um at our the literary magazine i run um we just not just but like we published in within like recent year or so uh like a hybrid piece in which it was actually my co-editor had to code into the website for that publication because it's like a scroll down drop down box mm-hmm. so you click on like an entry and it pops up with like a mini flash like piece so like that was really fascinating and i'm like how do people think of this or like another poet that i really admire um marissa crane they um they did like a venn diagram hybrid fiction poetry piece where like the writing was within the Venn diagram circles, which is just oh. like, how do you come up with this? Like, oh, no. I can barely get two sentences down and you're just out here creating forms. That so, you know, there's so, so much, there's so much that's being um, done with what you said, like surface and texture and like how we communicate. Some things are better on a page. Some things are better read out loud. Like I have so much respect for people who do like slam and spoken word poetry. I'm not really, I don't concern myself you know, within those communities outright, you know, but I love listening to how people can use their voice to emphasize or stress certain like syllables, or words, and kind of like how there's certain things that you can't really put on a page and vice versa. And that's the same thing with art, you know, there's installation art, you can't really, yeah. you can't always put that in a gallery. Sometimes you have to be out in the field that it's in or I mean, I guess if you wanted to be like that one artist who I think carpeted an entire gallery with like grass, I can't remember who did that, but there was like some environmental artist who did that. Yeah. Um, or like the spiral jetty mm-hmm. piece, you know, so there's certain things that can't be replicated by like photograph or gallery wise. So I think we're always, I think creative people are always looking for ways to kind of expand beyond, I guess the traditional constraints of their art, but again, there's nothing wrong with working within those constraints as well. I know. Yeah, because I, 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 yeah, there's something comfortable, comforting about working within the structure that that has a history. Mm-hmm. Um, you're working within a history um, of so 
many, so many people who came before you. And I think there's some comfort in that history in which you exist in, in, I don't know, you know, I look back at the Renaissance painters and, and the Baroque painters and, and they are like, they were there first, but, but we're all painters and, and having them, um, having them as, as part of the story. Yeah, definitely. Is, is reassuring. <laughs> Well, let's see. Is there a piece of poetry or prose that you are most proud of? Oh, that's a loaded question. I know it's like, what's your favorite oh. child? Yeah. Well, me, my favorite children are my cats, but <laughs> um, well, I guess in terms of like genres I've written in, I mean, obviously, my favorite nonfiction piece is definitely the one about the fanfiction that I wrote. Like. I think I'm very proud of myself for crafting like a nonfiction essay that makes sense because with poetry you can kind of play around with you know images and like you don't have to have like characters so to speak and then with nonfiction I had to like really I still made it personal but also kind of like detailed you know I had sources I you know, again had to kind of like fact check myself and still deliver like a personal essay that also had a lot going on regarding you know you know, internet culture is still forever changing and shifting, and just so much having to do with how people perceive online writing. Um, I guess with poetry, so actually, so that poem that I gave y'all to beat for about two years ago, the Daughterland poem, that was recently just accepted by QU Lit Mag, which is my, my graduate school's literary magazine. And I was like so happy that it finally got placed because it was had been rejected so many times <laughs> and it's just like one of my favorite poems that I've written um so I guess I'm pretty proud of that and this you know I'm working on a couple other things poems excerpts of you know 700 word like not quite essays more just like brain you know spewage that I'm trying to like contort into something readable um so yeah I think it, it's always like kind of I guess it's more like my favorite pieces of like a certain time, kind of like how, you know, artists have like certain art movements or periods, you know, like Picasso's blue era period, whatever, or like, you know, how Jack, like people think Jackson Pollock only did, like did the splatter paintings and that's actually not true of his entire um, right work um, as a painter or, you know, again, like, yeah, I, I, you know, it's hard, I think, to just kind of, like, nail down. It's more like I have favorite pieces from, like, certain times. Right, that makes but, sense. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm definitely, in terms of, like, most proud of, like, recently, I would say that on Daughterland. Um, it goes to show that you can keep getting rejected, and then one day, you're just going to bother enough people, and someone will finally accept it. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and you'll get paid for it, too, so. Hey. Yeah, that's always, that's always the plus. I mean, I, I write poetry not not for the money obviously but you know it's nice to it's always get, nice to get some chai tea money right <laughs> get some paid yeah uh so you've mentioned this article a couple times and i really loved reading it because we are creatures of the same childhood uh and we both read and wrote fan fiction though you were brave enough to actually publish it oh uh, yeah yeah i still am not that brave yeah. uh so I'm always, I'm always looking at like different 
fan art, fan fiction, mm-hmm. and I know that there's kind of like a debate on if it is legitimate art form. Yeah, so, I think so. Yeah, cool. That I was think my so. Idea. I think, you know, it's it gets tricky, I think, with fan art because a lot of, like, artists who draw, like, fan art, you know, they obviously can do commissions. It's a little different with, like, writing. I know from what I, I don't really peruse, like, those channels anymore, so to speak, but I do know sometimes people who are like, hey, can you write me a thousand word piece and about these characters or whatever? And, and you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think when people, when writers like George R.R. R. Martin or like other writers who like come down on like fan fiction, I'm like, well, dude, you were literally writing Lord of the Rings fan fiction. Like mm-hmm. that's what game, that's what uh, Song of Ice and Fire slash Game of Thrones is. Or, you know, these other writers who seem to really like not care for it. Um, yeah, it, it's just kind of funny to me because I'm like, at some point, we all have to start somewhere. Right. And, you know, again, originality is not in a vacuum. We all kind of borrow ideas. Um, and even, like, a lot of, like, novelists now have kind of come forward with being like, yeah, I wrote fan fiction. I, I drew fan art back then. And it helped, you know, kind of write. Now, obviously, what you shouldn't do is, like, write fan fiction and then just pull an ELL James and, like, publish it. Because I do find problems with that, especially. Or, like, you know, <clears throat> Cassandra Clare. But um, yeah, uh, you know, just certain writers who I think like self-plagiarize just so they can make money, like go get the bag, but also like don't make it so obvious. <laughs> but yeah, I think it, it's valid. You know, I think it helps a lot of people kind of figure out where their creativity kind of comes from and how they engage with their favorite forms of media. So absolutely, I think, and especially with, I think, poetry, you have like a lot of like pop culture poetry being published now a lot of poems about like star wars or you know just anything from like tiger king to uh jurassic park to anything like any any sort of like anime even you know a lot of like i have you know a a writer friend of mine uh published his chat book about pokemon cool like it's very like deeply personal and about his identity as a as a black man but it's also like dealing with like pokemon like entries and stuff and i just find that so fascinating and it's so funny when people try to be like oh that's not like high culture and i'm like well i mean freaking canterbury tales had fart jokes like right <laughs> like you know the, that one scene that everyone talks about you know like there's this always been like quote-unquote pop culture and how we engage with it as well as like fan fiction as you know paradise lost is basically just bible fan fiction and Canto was like, <laughs> you know, you know, John Milton was like, "What if I made Lucifer hot?" Like, <laughs> yeah, what if? I mean, that's a, that's a, I mean, that's a little productive even. But I think when you put, when you, when people write stories based on their favorite shows or books, or when they write, you know, or they draw like their favorite characters, they're engaging with media, and that's really what it's meant to do, right? Right. Any sort of TV show or movie or book or web series and it's meant to entertain but also create its own narrative with people and have it reflect onto them so yeah I think it's legitimate and it's it shouldn't be like completely shamed I only find issue again if it's like you know self-plagiarizing just to get money or when you copy like you know again plagiarize another writer so that's really my only issue with that (laughs) right well we're pretty much on the same page so it seems like it can be a nice entry. You know, I, th- I think poetry as a visual art, there's a stigma attached. 
do it. And I think sometimes when you're working in, in like a genre that is more approachable, um, you know, if, if you start with the familiar with people, mm-hmm. I mean, that can bring in people who would ordinarily not feel comfortable reading mm-hmm. your writing, you know, and then you can, you can put your own thoughts and, and feelings into it, but you've created like a bridge or a door that people right. can, can enter through. And it's a door they feel comfortable walking into when actually you're, you know, you're also introducing them to your ideas and thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think poetry, again, has this bad rap of being, you know, unapproachable and, you know, just boring or like a lot of people saying, I get it. And there's nothing, you know, again, wrong with that first impression of like, well, oh, I don't really understand this. And a lot of time I do blame like schools, like, especially public schools for like this idea of like you have to explain everything in a poem or like you know this means xyz or you know again like rehashing the same five poems that you only ever learn and obviously that's not true of every single like person who's read poetry in school but you know for me especially it wasn't until I got to like college that I actually expanded my reading pool and didn't just read poems by dead white guys but like contemporary poets and like non-white poets and you know, poets of any, you know, like trans poets or, you know, poets of any sort of sexual orientation. Um, So, yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that I find interesting is the whole Instagram poetry, like, thing, you know, Ruby Cower, who writes those very, like, simplistic, simple, like, poems. Um, I have, again, get the bag, you know, get your money. Like, I think any person who finds value in reading poetry, no matter where it's from, no matter who wrote it, um, you know, that's that's still them reading it. Like as much as I hate Twilight example, the book, like at least it got people reading. I don't agree with Twilight. I think Stephanie Meyer's not a very good writer, but you know, at least it got teens of that time reading because, you know, the last time that really happened with that phenomenon was Harry Potter and well, look at it now. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the reason why I love Bob Ross. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Bob Ross got so many people painting. Um, and still, you know, people still yeah, watch still his to this, Yeah, to this day, people, he, he makes painting accessible to everyone. Yeah. Um, and that's what I really care about is accessibility, especially to poetry. You know, I'm not like, again i feel like one of the problems right now i guess in the poetry community is that there is a lot of like gatekeeping in terms of like prizes and submission fees and while i understand to an extent that you know magazines have to keep running there are you know for example poetry publishing especially like a whole book like i'm very lucky that with my chat book it's through an independent press and that he doesn't charge submission fees you know i'm very thankful for that um, but there in case a lot of like university run presses that have like contests like once a year and you have to pay like anywhere from like 15 to 25 dollars for manuscript and you know you think that's not bad and sometimes you get like a winning a copy of like the winning book or whatever or like it's a contest for like an individual set of poems like they'll give you a print copy but a lot of times just like you're wasting you're wasting so much money like I've known people who've written poems and then sent them in and have like kept track of like their submission fees and it's like in the hundreds yeah I'm sure mine's probably maybe in the hundreds I don't know I kind of (laughs) I think the last year and a half I haven't really submitted anywhere that cost money but 
you know, I don't mind paying like a $3, you know, tip jar fee sort of thing. But I do find problems with when it's pretty evident that like a press or especially a university or institution run press charges you and there's not much of like a transparency as to why. Right. You know, that's what I do find issue with. And especially because it keeps out like poets that are not like of a certain socioeconomic class or like, you know, a lot of times like, you know, poets who aren't white or cisgender or whatever. Um, so, you know, I do have my problems with that. But, you know, at the same time, I understand why submission fees kind of have to exist in some form just so they can keep keep it running. But, you know, yeah, it's, I, I'm not a huge fan of, of things costing money. <laughs> yeah. well, and that's the same it. thing with art, I bet, especially when you have to, like, either mail your artwork or even if you have to send like a, a pdf of it sometimes they still charge you so oh, oh they charge you oh yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's about uh you know yeah, three pieces submitted for anywhere from 35 to 50 dollars mm-hmm. and and it's the same thing you, you end up all of a sudden those, i'm sorry but those add up after a while those oh, five dollars yeah. those 50 dollars they they really do add up and then they you know and, and, I'm, and I'm talking as somebody who, yeah, we're the same way. We have a jury show. We charge that much money. It, yeah. but, it, it, but it actually, it, 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 it goes for a nonprofit. It goes back into our operation. Yeah, yeah it's one prizes, basically. Yeah, we, we desperately need it. Um, mm-hmm. but, but then, like, we can't afford, the artists have to pay for their own shipping. We can't afford shipping, and shipping is, is hugely hugely expensive oh yeah um but i know a lot of poets um who have self-published mm-hmm. um have you done any self-published publishing or thought about self no but i know a lot of poets who do and you know what again every avenue is different i've definitely like thought about like self-publishing like a lot of especially because that's where a lot of like indie presses start is like writers who are like hey you know what I'm not going to deal with like the big five publishing house and not just like poetry but like any sort of press like they want to be able to curate their own portfolio of writers they want to represent especially because this is how like a lot of again like non-white you know writers get published or anyone that's not of like traditionally you know from the Iowa writers workshop sort of thing um yeah I have absolutely it's a hard it's a hard deal I know one of my graduate school friends um does a lot of like self-publishing for romance novels and she hustles harder than like most people she's her own marketer photoshopper you know in touch with like artists to help like create her covers and i have respect for that you know i don't the only like i think the problem with like a lot of like people and how they perceive self-publishing is because a lot of like academic jobs don't accept that like it looks bad and i'm like well look like if you can self-publish on like amazon or use like a print on demand service like go for it um I just haven't really done it at this time for myself just because I'm not like actively like publishing like manuscripts right now but um yeah I, I respect it I think it should be more legitimized um yeah especially since I'm not going to the academic field so to me it's not lost like if I decide to self-publish or if I keep publishing with smaller presses because that's not like my ultimate goal isn't tenure track like professorship mm-hmm. But it's getting, it's, the competition's definitely getting harder and harder. And those presses, um, 
you know, sometimes, unfortunately, some indie presses or even like well-established presses like shut down and it's making it harder and harder to kind of find places that would publish your work. So that's kind of always in the back of my mind, too. Well, I think as long as people are making poetry, there will probably always be at least someone trying yeah. to get it published. So oh, yeah. oh, all yeah. the tried and true ones may eventually see. Oh, yeah. And I think but new I ones think, will replace them. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's really something to be said about the tenacity of like Art. indie small, yeah, indie zines, you know, especially like the underground zines of like the 80s and 90s, like yeah. kind of scene. Um, so I have a lot of respect for people who do that because it really is like a way for club. And it, you know, especially with my my press, um, Glass Poetry Press, like it's a one man operation. It's, it's uh, Anthony just with a with a nice printer and you know does all like you know the the the, like layout and you know I was lucky to have my friend design the art for my chapbook but a lot of times it's usually like up to the writer to be like hey I like this piece of artwork or you know sometimes you find an artist and you're like can we pay you to use this image for the cover um so you know it's a lot more like I like it I like indie presses because you have more control over your your work whereas you know if you publish let's say if I published a, a novel with Simon Schuster I guess uh, right yeah just that's gonna happen I you know, materialize in the future um you know you you don't always have control over like the layout of the book you don't have control over the cover image a lot of times you don't have control over sometimes who orbs it even oh wow like, you know you, you just go through so many edits with so many different people um so sometimes it's like, is that really worth it at the same time? Or they're like, we like this, but change everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you get to do it. I've done, I've done cover art for a, a self-published poet mm-hmm. who, who liked my work and asked me if I'd um, give her one of my paintings for, the, for her um, book. And I can tell you, I certainly didn't charge her. It was an honor to be on the cover of her, of her book of poems. Yeah, same with same with my friend. Um, I asked I asked Stormy if she wanted anything, like because my publisher was willing to pay her like a small stipend, and she's like, "No." I'm like, "Are you sure?" She's like, "Yeah, just give me Starbucks." I'm like, "Okay." Like I, I fully believe in paying people. Like, <laughs> no, it's it's a huge, a huge. I think honor to be asked, mm-hmm. honestly. And then I agree. You know, I always like to see uh, like an artist-run gallery. I'm always more happy sending my work to an artist-run gallery mm-hmm. um, than the big guys mm-hmm. uh, who, like the, like the smaller the better. So I imagine yeah. that um, since artists are trying to, to take over more and more control of their work, and we're seeing that digitally um, with the NFT, um, and a lot of musicians are are doing that as well so they can have complete control over their work they're selling through nft so they retain all of their rights and of course we're seeing that with uh, digital artwork in the whole um market that's that's appearing digitally um have, have you been have you been watching that phenomena you know just being around on the internet with like twitter i think there's a lot of like qualms about nfts you know not just like the environmental impact but just like to me i don't like it when like tech bros or silicon valley bros kind of like get a slice of like whatever medium like whatever media they want just because i'm like mm, i don't know this seems kind of fishy uh, doesn't it 
dude, that's how I feel about it. I'm like hearing everybody's going that direction. I'm like, wait a minute. And environmentally, it, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah, it just to me, I'm just like, why? Like, I don't understand Bitcoin. I don't care. I'm just like, is it fake digital money? Like, is it like Neopets money? <laughs> like Neopets? Oh, yeah. I made the Neopets joke when like that first started appearing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like, is it just you know, I don't care to understand it. I try to know enough just so I know how to navigate the conversation, but I'm just like, I don't, to me, like, yeah, there's valid points we made about how you can make art digitally more accessible and, you know, pay for it in that way. But I don't think like cryptocurrency or like crypto anything is the, was the answer. Again, I just, I don't trust anything that, that like, well, tech you kind of touched on it like you're making it digitally accessible but like the minute you say cryptocurrency my brain goes blank because that is yeah. just something i will never have as a normal person who was like or bitcoin like you always get like those bots on like, instagram or twitter that's like bitcoin traders you know, right. dm me for more i'm like no thank you like <laughs> i'm not going to be a brand like <laughs> no so like i don't i think while it is bringing attention to art and making it accessible to more people but like buying it is even more inaccessible in my brain because i'm like i don't even know how much of bitcoin is off the top of my head and i don't even think i'll own that much money period <laughs> so yeah. i'd rather just buy physical art yeah or if you can't it. buy it like physically at least boost or support that artist by like right. sharing their work or you know send it to someone it. who you yeah. no will like it too or review it like if you i'm sure this is the same for visual art like if you go to a gallery and mention it like oh yeah i just went to this gallery you know once everybody's been vaccinated and we're all open up and it's not yeah <laughs> you know just like sharing it that way or buying their merch if you can't like afford yeah. something and that's the same thing with poetry like if you can't buy someone's book like a lot of times actually there's like cool like gofundme sort of things where like someone's like i will you know like a like a voucher almost like i'll pay for the first if someone can't afford like my book, I'll just send it to them. No questions asked. Um, and I've done that a few times. Um, you know, cause I think it's important, especially for people who can't always access. Yeah. I think cause my book's only like eight bucks ish. Right. Um, but you know, like $8 is a lot for some people still. And I think it's important to kind of do what you can. If you can't afford it, then yeah. Have, you know, have more of a community that, supports that and wants to provide for those who can't always access you know can't always buy journals and that's kind of like my 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 ongoing you know <laughs> vendetta against like print journals that don't even like share like some of their works online when you want to submit to them I'm like I'm not paying money for this like sorry <laughs> you know it seems like a lot of money if you're not going to even show like a sample poem of something you published in the past year or two like Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, it's tricky. Have you ever read Barth's Death of the Author? Roland Barth, yeah. Uh -huh. How do you feel about when you let go, when you put your art out there, you, you know, kind of his premise, which is, which is marginally um, ludicrous in, in some ways, but I think... Well, yeah, and a lot of people take it in the wrong direction. I even mentioned yeah. that in that essay that, like, death of the author i'm like that's not necessarily what it means i think a lot of people just think of it, it's like removing the biographical element mm -hmm. and that's not you know that's not what he means but that's where a yeah. lot of people tend to yeah they, kind of, they take it in that direction direction yeah like i think i think art is a product of its own making that like no matter 
how distant you are from your own work. The text also stands as its own vehicle and is going to, you know, kind of like what I talked about earlier about subconsciously, like when you write something or draw something, there's always going to be like that element that you didn't notice that other people are going to notice. Mm -hmm. So that that's absolutely valid. And I think when you make, no matter how many times, even with printmaking, you know, you make the same print over and over a hundred times, there's always going to be a slight difference or like a, a, a yeah, like a, a, a smear or, you know, a, a registering is, you know, not always exact so yeah exactly so I think that's that's the same thing with putting your work out there is that no matter where it goes or how many times it's shared or when it's posted there's always going to be some sort of different understanding of it um but yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> again almost former history major here <laughs> yeah a lot of a lot of a lot of um, Wittgenstein and you're talking to two people who like to just name drop artists back and forth, so we can hang with our history people. Oh, and that's the same thing with writers too. Right. We can't. Well, you're talking to somebody who, in, in graduate school, we were we were sitting around, and we spent a lot of time sitting around. I can tell you, um, talking, and and everybody was like, "Who's your favorite poet?" And we went around, and everybody said, "Who their favorite poet is?" And they like they got to me, and I said, "Oh, A. A. Milne." <laughs> <laughs> I love I love AA Milne. It makes me happy. I love when we were yeah, you know. Winnie the Pooh, yeah. Yeah, I mean he wrote have you read his poems when we were very young? Oh, I mean I, I know Winnie the Pooh. Oh, yeah. you have to read his poems. Um his poems are fantastic. They're oh. they're they're funny and engaging and uh you need funny poems. You need you know, people have this belief, clever. you know, a lot of like I always joke, I'm like, I, you know, my poems aren't that, you know, I'm going to write a happy poem, and they're like, oops, but like, you know, it's the same thing with fiction, no one says, you know, I guess the closest thing to fiction is like, oh, it's just autobiographical, because a lot of times, like, the debut novel is usually, like, an autobiographical slash, like, Roman Club sort of thing, um, but, you know, there's poems of all different types, like, wedding, happy poems, nature poems, poems about, you know, again, anime characters you know, <laughs> you know and, and, yeah, and there's a, there's a place to go. I was a lucky little kid because every night my father my father would let me choose you know it's one of those huge anthologies of poetry and every night we'd open it and go this one mm -hmm. and every night for years and years and years I heard a poem that's important yeah I am um, yeah. my mom had a copy of uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's poems I think like a child's garden of verses and she would read that to me yeah. um you know a lot of other yeah I think nursery rhymes even are like early, early poems, you know poem. they're yeah. easy to remember they rhyme um you know you don't really get like the traditional rhyming poem nowadays in contemporary poetry because it can feel a little contrived and like forced but you can still rhyme in ways where it's not like you know a b a b a b yeah <laughs> kind of pattern yeah, and I think if you grow up listening to poetry and, and poetry is part of what you hear, um, it, 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 it takes away some of the stigma. Yeah, and just poem, like, you know, people often, I remember um, a lot of people's, like, introduction of uh, poetry was through um, uh, deaf poetry, like, by most deaf, which I, I know he doesn't go by, like, that name anymore, but I, I'm missing what is I don't think I know him by any other name. Yeah, uh, most definitely. It's worth the Google. Wait. It's worth the Google. 
Yeah, Yassine Bey. Yeah, better known by his stage name, Mostef. Yeah. So, like, a lot of people were introduced to, like, poetry that way. And a lot of, like, rap and R&B and, you know, a lot of songs are poems. Like, yeah. lyrics. Like, lyrics. Yeah. Again, like, I'm not going to judge someone who has, like, their introduction to poetry through their lyrical, you know, stuff. I think that's great. I'm not going to think that's a lower form. Like, you know, I think there's a reason why people still listen to Tupac, you know? Right. <laughs> A lot of his, a lot of his verses are still very real and, you know, very like complex. Um, you know, so yeah, I think if, when you're exposed to it in not just like the traditional way when you're younger or when you have like, you know, the Amanda Gorman reading her poem at the inauguration, like that's really powerful. The fact that yeah. like, book, mm-hmm. like her book was like sales exploded and she had like this online presence all of a sudden. Um, and I think that's a good way to introduce people who may not traditionally have been drawn to poetry, but having that such a national stage or having like poet laureates um, of cities and states and like, you know, obviously the U.S. Um, so I think there's there's ways to do that. And again, just like having more contemporary poets being read in schools, but I think also kind of combat that whole like, it's just all dead and no one understands it. Or like maybe yeah. instead of like forcing people to read a poem and figuring out what it means, just being like, what does it mean to you? Right. You know, and like, of course, you're always going to have like the Shakespeare, the, you know, Coleridge, and there's nothing, obviously, I mean, I still love Yeats, I still love Keats, um, all, you know, but you can also introduce like newer writers who take those traditions and, you know, kind of introduce it that way so you're not you know entering this world of literature where everything's of a certain you know type you know but I do wish I do wish like growing up that I had like especially in high school or like early college I wish I could have been exposed to more poets of all varieties and backgrounds and ethnicities and not having to had discover them through you know later in college or grad school but I guess that's what the online community is there for is just finding things out that process. And I'm sure the same thing is for traditional art too, you know, like okay. you study all the French dudes and uh, the, the Dutch dudes, the Dutch dudes, dudes Spanish dudes. dudes. I mean, Velasquez is still like a king though. Like you can't touch Diego Velasquez. Like, <laughs> <laughs> or um, uh, Bacon. This, oh, yeah. <laughs> And that would be interesting to write some poetry on a bacon. I mean, Ekphrasis, when you were talking about the call and response, I mean, Ekphrasis poetry is basically a poem that you write based on any sort of art, you know. Mm-hmm. So that does exist. I mean, I'm sure people have written poems about paintings. I know there are, there are collections that center around it. I'm just, I'm blinking because, you know, I can only remember three things at a time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, one of those things is going to be Francis Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> you already got the two names so there was no room yeah, for yeah. anything else oh no i was like the minute you said bacon i was like whoa <laughs> i mean because bacon was basically poetry. his painting was you know especially like of the pope like that was a direct response to velasquez oh yeah i mean his he, he took from other he appropriated excuse me <laughs> he appropriated from other artists to create his own you know you have poets who were inspired by like 80s you know graffiti street art like Basquiat for example um you know that was a huge you know Keith Haring huge influence on like writing culture at that time so you know it's creativity and art isn't just in one 
like we said, isolated place. It, it impacts everything. So, mm-hmm, you know, yeah. poet, when people are writing poetry, you think about like the images, like Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot, and you look at the art at the time, you're like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. You know, they, there's always different movements and different explorations of a subject and, you know, medium yeah. and how that relates in other, you know, other um, areas of culture. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you look at the the Dada movement, you know, Dada was across the board, visual arts, um, uh, poem, poetry, mm-hmm. music. I mean, it, 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 you know, that's one of the things that's sort of a problem that we're also spread out now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> is we don't have the cafe where you have all the artists of different mediums coming together and talking. Yeah, like the people. salon sort of. Yes, like, which I think we actually need. You know, I think I think it would be good to bring back those times where you have. Um, be good for Lynchburg too, especially. Yeah, just have artists come together and. and I mean, that's something I'm definitely going to try to try to start planting when I start my my new job at the academy. Ooh, would you Early. plant plant that, please? But we had like some some and and keep us at Riverviews um, in on this, um, where we have times in which we gather together artists of, mm-hmm. of all mediums and we all just sit down and have coffee you know we're coffee with curators so there's no re- reason why I mean you know why we all couldn't sit down and talk about you know what we're thinking what's going on and yeah. um yeah I think it'll be interesting to see how writing and art is in, I mean obviously it's being impacted now by COVID-19 and mm-hmm all these things um so it'll be interesting to see what it looks like 10 years from now or how people are reflecting on it you know same thing with what happened with cholera or you know the 1918 flu or you know everything you know when people are like don't write or you know don't show media about covid right now i'm like i understand why it feels still a little bit like new like it's weird to see like shows or movies where they want to have like the mask on i think we're not like emotionally or mentally distant enough yet to kind of watch that but at the same time I'm like obviously writers and artists were writing and drawing and painting during times of crisis like it happens you know that's just how people react to things so at the same time I'm like it's human nature to respond to things in a creative way and and in all of our podcasts we ask artists how they've been you know doing during COVID fascinating to hear the responses some artists are super productive making all sorts of work and then there are as as you spoke about you know you you know there are some of us I think myself included who we just kind of couldn't make work yeah and it really depends on that person individually as well as like what kind of mental space or physical space they're occupying like again like it's just been now that I've been able to kind of go back to writing things a little bit more and you know I think drawing through the past year has definitely helped mm-hmm. with still being creative but you know I think we all hit dry spells and mm-hmm. it, when something of this nature happens as on such a global scale it does kind of depress the person not in terms of like depression but like it depresses and like oh. doesn't make you want to produce anything but to yeah. do any work so I think you know I think there's going to be the, the artist who is able to work during the pandemic and I think there are going to be a lot of artists who need space from it but then we'll start dealing mm-hmm. with you know 
what they what they were feeling at the time and they just couldn't do it at the time they needed space on well, and i hope that with advances in technology like i think there's been way more like online poetry readings in fact i'm part of a reading in a panel this month so woohoo so that traditionally you know you'd have to go to like a pan like a convention you know like awp or nola poetry to like see these people in person but now with like zoom and google me and everything else like now there's a way for people to tune in where they're from the comfort of their own home they don't have to like pay anything really you know yeah. there's more people just doing stuff like online and making it more accessible so i really hope that continues um and the you know even we're all vaccinated and things are quote unquote you know moved on you know mm -hmm. wink <laughs> you know i th i think it will i mean meg and i both went to studio visits in washington dc Yep. You know, cool. and we 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 ran around. It was virtually, virtually, we went around and met a whole bunch of contemporary artists in their studios mm -hmm. in the in working in DC. And I can't imagine it was so successful. I think that's going to be part of the future. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So was at home, I know the Academy um, was doing a lot of. Uh, virtual classes so I'm really excited to see where the academy continues with that because that was something I brought up when I accepted the job <laughs> so I'll be working really close to you guys um yeah right on the corner I start on the 12th so about oh, a, for you. over a week um but yeah that's something I definitely want to see continued in Lynchburg it's just virtual classes as well as just how can we take the lessons we've learned from virtual ideas and COVID and just push it for the future so that way you know yeah it would be nice to have like full house theaters and music shows again but you know in the meantime how can we better serve a community and that, that's the same thing for Riverview's art space as to how oh, yeah. can we provide the same level of you know curated artworks and studio visits and whatever um, but for yeah. people who may not be local or may not even be in the state of Virginia you know well we've been so grateful for like any artists who last year in particular we had people from like one of them moved to Colorado in the middle of planning the exhibit and he was still down to yeah. show like we had people we extended a whole show like months and all these different people were like yeah just you know keep it in place and let people see it and we threw everything on the website to get people to see the yeah. show so we couldn't have shown anything if it wasn't for the artists willing to show in a pandemic. I think, I think artists and writers understand that. Like, again, the good ones anyway. I'm like, yeah. Know, nobody oh, with an I ego. But. <laughs> but, yeah, absolutely. But I'll be excited to kind of see where things go in the next several months. Um, I mean, once I just got the jab yesterday and <laughs> jab. Looking, yeah, it, and my arm's still kind of hurting, but that was just the first dose. I've heard the second one's kind of a doozy, so. Yes. Yeah, I got mine on Friday. I'm still, I'm much better than I was <laughs> Saturday. Yeah. The, yeah. The so I'm kind of glad I got at least. For a day, so. Yeah. I'm glad I at least got this one before I started my job, and then the next one, I think it's also the same day, like a few weeks from now, so at least I can kind of have a, a weekend to, if it's really bad. Yeah. Whatever, but, you know. And even then, like, I'm not going to, like, go out and rip off my mask and party. Like, I'm not that stupid. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, I just, I look forward to the day where we can all be in a museum 
gallery space together, you know, having, you know, a poetry re reading live, but also like a virtual one or just doing things that can reach people of all backgrounds and situations and living places. Cause you know, art's not a one size fit all community and it shouldn't mm -mm. be, it no. should be expandable and flexible and, you know, and, and accessible and you know and 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 honestly so much of art we price people out um they just yeah writing writing is definitely like that too i mean awp one of those literary conferences i just talked about i've been to three of them it's expensive especially depending on the city that you go to i mean my first one was in dc which was fairly affordable because i could drive up there but like i went to the ones in tampa and portland in the past few years and that was expensive and it was totally fun but it was also just godly expensive and then of course they had one in san antonio last year which was right at the start of the COVID thing so like they still had it thankfully no one i knew who went got COVID, but like it was in those early days where like nobody really knew it was like oh it's just gonna be like over in two weeks yeah this so it, you know and this year it's virtual but i'm not i'm not going because why <laughs> But, um, you know, it would be nice to one day have like a physical place to, you know, meet and hang out with other artists and writers. But at the same time, I think we just would be more aware that people can't financially afford those things. And same with artists, like they can't just drop everything, especially if they're like with ma married or have kids or like mm -hmm. other obligations. They can't just drop everything for like a week and just head out to Oregon or head out to, you know, whatever big city and spend hundreds of dollars on rooming. And even if you get like a room with four other writers, which is what I did when I, the last time I went. Good strategy. I mean, it definitely saved money, but it was also, you know, it's just not really conducive towards like being like, sa like savings friendly, you know? Mm -hmm. There's so much money to be made and that type of field i'm like really like the real people who are making money are like the conference organizers not the <laughs> yeah very often that's the case yeah. even with like like conventions for artists so yeah. absolutely well we have we have to go I've, i'm so off script it's not even funny i like, think we asked every question I was i've been trying to follow along <laughs> I've been I had a good time talking. Yeah, I, think. I have been all over the place. Here. That's kind of the point of this, though. Like, it's it's like we're supposed to be having yeah. coffee with you. We're not going to be reading no. ad copy for, you know, me undies or whatever. I oh. will I will if they sponsor, <laughs> but not until then. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, like a whatever sponsor, Casper. Casper. Like, I, I was yeah, watching. Yeah, it's like, usually Casper, me undies. Like, Skillshare. Skillshare is a big one. Well, that's like for YouTube, I've noticed. Like, and sometimes I don't mind if it's like related to their topic, but sometimes I'm like, really, you're doing like Raycon for like this video on like fashion. I'm like, mm, I don't know. Seems kind of <laughs> sus, but maybe Fortnite will sponsor us. I'll have to do an ad read for Fortnite. Can Minecraft sponsor us? I wish. Virtual art gallery in Minecraft, you know? <laughs> Okay, but some of us have tried that, so. I'm, I'm too, I'm, I know I'm getting older. I'm like, I, I don't even know what you TikToker, Minecrafters, like, is that still a thing? <laughs> like, I, I don't, Twitch I, Discorders, like, my sister's on Discord, and I'm like, what's, you know, what is that? <laughs> I don't know if people still 
I, I'm sure people still play Minecraft, but they're more options than just Minecraft. So it's just Fortnite now. <laughs> <laughs> and Among Us. Yeah, kids, kids are already starting to feel like those grandmas on the front porch being like, kids these days, you know. Back in my day, we only had, you know, LAN servers and, you know, Neopets and Gaia Online. Like, that's all we had. Yeah. We, we had the dial tone when we wanted to log yeah. on if someone was on the phone. Uh, yeah, or the AOL dial-up, you know. <laughs> log oh, it into man. DOS. Let's do that again. Yeah. I mean, it probably would be more secure now. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually the key. We and just need to revert back to DOS. <laughs> well, thanks, Hannah. I think we covered a large variety of topics. And I love talking about anything that's even not related to writing. So whether it's us, you know, talking about NFTs and how bad they are to, you know, fan art, fan fiction, anime, and everything else, yeah. you know, and poetry, of course, and writing, then that's fine with me. I think it's good to have a, a large birth of interest. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's basically the whole theme of this podcast that we just no, talked about was just no so poet put all like, your eggs in a basket. No poet should be like, my only identity is just poetry. I'm like, that's not me. <laughs> I, have, I, am, I contain multitudes, as a boy Whitman would say. 